Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Weekly Walk. I'm your host, Joshua Ingram. It is Monday, September 26th, year of our Lord, 2022. And this is episode number 72. The last couple weeks, I've been uh, trying to wrap my head around covenant theology versus dispensationalism. Um, I think I've tried to look into this in the past and I was just really confused about it. Like, so one thing that bothers me is a lot of times people who are trying to teach on a subject, they teach like they teach on such a high level. It's like an, like an academic level. Like they're just talking above everybody's head using terms and, 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 and phrases and just different terminology that you wouldn't understand unless like you went to school for this stuff and it just makes it so hard to to grasp like what 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 is being taught you know it's it's such a disappointing way to teach like that that's not the essence of teaching like when you teach you're supposed to um like something has but you've understood some sort of truth like the Lord has revealed <clears throat> something in his word to you, given your mind understanding of it, it's it's become a reality to you. And then what you're supposed to do in teaching is to take that concept or that idea or whatever it is, that doctrine um, that's been that's become a reality in your heart, and now you're supposed to express it um in a way that everybody can grasp that that's the point of teaching. Uh, the gift of teaching is that God has revealed something to you. You've processed it, made it your own, and now you can explain it to others so that they can benefit from that as well. And um, I feel like a lot of times teaching is just regurgitating um, academic facts like, and to me, that means like it hasn't been, uh, it's not a reality to you. You, you, you haven't made this idea real in your heart. You've just memorized a bunch of, bunch of information and you're just repeating that information. And a, um, a person who doesn't have equal to or greater than, um, academic training is not going to understand what you're talking about. And B, what you're saying is going to sound dry and just insincere you know it's it's not gonna it's not gonna do any good like true teaching it like if you're if you're teaching me something i want to see that it's a reality to you that that this is that you've grasped this that that this is um important to you that you see the glory in it and now you're able to express that in a way that i can understand and unfortunately, a lot of times, especially like I think when you're trying to study theological concepts, um, people don't do that. They just repeat what they've learned in school. And to me, that that's not it's not even real like knowledge or, or wisdom or whatever it is. It's it's just you've just memorized facts, you know, that the, it's just educated information it's just academic information it's not real and there's no substance to it it's not there's no life behind what you're saying and so whenever i've tried to study the subject out a lot of times that's what i hear is just people regurgitating 
things they've learned in school and and it becomes a um a concept that I just can't understand like I I've like I say I've, I've tried before to wrap my mind around this and and I just can't you know it's it's I don't know I don't when I listen to it I don't know what they're getting at I don't understand why it's important I don't understand why I need to know the difference and and so I've often just kind of dismissed it and moved on I've I've heard enough um experientially from people that believe in dispensationalism um to make me dismiss it because the things they said were so just um extreme and and just it was just far out stuff that I was like whoa you know that that is not accurate I'm not going down that road so I always just assumed that I probably fall on the covenant side of the spectrum you know if you're you're looking at a graph and on one side you've got dispensationalism and on the other side you've got covenantalism I've just always assumed I'm on the covenantal side because of the things I've heard from dispensationalists Uh, um, I've heard you know um, a lot of the the pre-tribulation rapture type stuff is tied up into dispensationalism, and I'm vehemently opposed to that. And um, reformed theology, th- those are the the those who believe in the the absolute sovereignty of God over salvation. The the Calvinistic idea tends to be um, covenantal, and so you know, like I say, I've always just assumed I was on that. And I, I'm not really sure what led to me thinking about this issue again a couple weeks ago. Um, but all of a sudden I just had a desire to kind of look into it again and, and try to try to see where I am. I think it started, I look, I wanted to, because I've done this with like Reformed theology too. I was like, am I Reformed? Um, just because I'm a Calvinist, just because I believe in the five points uh, uh, of the doctrines of grace, the tulip theology, does that make me Reformed? And so... Um, I've tried to look into that before too and been confused, but I found a real simplistic um, explanation on a podcast and he basically boiled it down to the three C's. He said that in order to be reformed, you have to be, you have to be a Calvinist, you have to be a covenantalist, and you have to be a confessionalist. Um, And so I was like, okay, well then would I fit into these? I know I'm a Calvinist. Am I a covenantal? Do I believe in covenantal theology? Do I am I? Um, do I adhere to the to the confessions of faith? And like right away, that that kind of deterred me because I was like, well, the confessions are just man made. You know, I'm not gonna submit myself to the authority of any type of confession. Um, I've read the Westminster um, previously, and I've read the 1689 Baptist. And I've read through um, the canons of Dort and um, what was it, the, the Council of Orange or something like that, the Orange. I've read through those documents and the the canons of Dort and, and the, the, the Council of Orange uh, was focused on um, Calvinism, on the doctrines of grace. And so I was in agreement with those. And I would say, like, the Westminster and the 1689 Baptists were pretty much the same thing. Like, I, I couldn't even tell you what the differences were. And I remember um, I was probably, like, 95% in agreement with them. Um, and the things that I disagreed with were very minor, just uh, on, a, on a few, like, I don't remember exactly. Maybe it was, like, something on the Lord's Supper or something on baptism 
where I was like, mm, I, I don't know if I really agree with that or not. So I don't know to be a to be a confessionalist. Does that mean I have to agree with one hundred percent of the Westminster Confession? Because this guy was saying that uh, to be reformed, like it, it has to be the Westminster. It, it can't be uh, the sixteen eighty nine Baptist and um. So I was like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I could classify myself then as reformed. I I, I don't know if I fit into those three C's. Um, like I say, I, as far as I can remember, I, I'm in 95% agreement with the Westminster Confession of Faith. And um, I'm 10,000 million times in agreement with Calvinism. Um, there's nothing I'm more assured of in my faith other than uh, Christ and his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, and, and faith in him as my Savior. Um, other than that, the, the most solid um, doctrine I have, the, the thing I stand on the most, is, is, is the doctrines of grace and, and God's sovereignty over all things. Um, so if I'm in agreement there... And if I don't have to be a hundred percent in agreement with the confessions, if I can be ninety-five to ninety-nine percent in agreement and still call myself a confessionalist, then the only thing I'm left going is okay, well, am I am do I adhere to covenant theology? And so let's try to figure out what this is. Um so I, I think that's probably where this line of thought came from. And so I, I looked up a whole bunch of videos and, and another thing I dislike is um, and, 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 and I do this as well. I think it's virtually impossible to do, but whenever somebody is teaching on a particular topic, um, their bias is going to come through. Like, even when they say, I'm going to try to present both sides of the argument in an unbiased way, they lean one way or another, you know, they, they have a bias and, regardless of how um fair they try to be you can you can sense that bias in in their conversation you can sense which way they lean uh based on the way they talk about it like there there'll be a tone of of um disdain or discrediting when they're talking about the side they disagree with and so it gets it's really hard to like know okay well you know are they generalizing this other position? Are they speaking in, in blanket statements? Are they using straw man arguments, things that they're, they're presenting the other side in a way that makes their side sound better, you know? And, and so like, I like to learn by watching a debate because I feel like that way you, you're getting unbiased or not unbiased, but you're getting, um, it's, it's totally biased, but you're getting both sides of the argument. In a debate, um, in, a, in a good debate, you're getting um, the best that both sides have to offer. Um, dis, if it's, for instance, in a, in a debate on dispensationalism versus covenant theology, the person presenting dispensationalism truly believes in it. They've studied it out. They're going to have their best ammo, so to speak, their best arguments for it and their best arguments against covenantalism and then vice versa. And so I feel like in a debate, you can really, really get a good idea of both sides of the argument. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any good debates on this topic. 
Um, so I was left, you know, going to different videos of people teaching on it. And then of course, like I was saying, you, you have those biases that come in. Um, but I did find a, a series, um, where a person was teaching, um, where I feel like they're doing a really good job of presenting both sides. They let you know where they stand, but then the, I feel like they're doing a, a really good job of presenting the other side of the argument as well. And so I started watching that. It's like a 20 part series, you know, I'm, I'm like five or six into it. Uh, but as I was watching it, um, again, just unable to determine, like, I need the, the, give me the, the base foundation of covenant theology. You know, that's what I'm looking for. What is it? Why is it important? And, and, and what does it see wrong with dispensationalism and then vice versa? What, what are, what are the important things of dispensationalism? And, um, the thing is, is it, like I had always heard that dispensationalism. Well, no, because then I'll, I'll be I'll present my bias if I say that. But um, as I'm looking into this issue, and I guess the idea is is this is a, a, these two things are frameworks for how you read the scriptures, and when you believe in dispensationalism you see the scriptures as like closed chapters almost you know like like in in genesis 1 through genesis whatever you know 40 or whatever it is i i don't know the exact frameworks but um that's one specific time frame where god was working in one specific way and so the scriptures there are applicable to that time period to that people and 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 they're applicable in a certain in, in a certain frame in a certain sphere and then you move on to the next chapter it's like it's like that part is closed and now we move on to something else and then and then that part is closed and we move on to something else and so that kind of fits with what I've heard from dispensationalists like and that's what turned me off about it is people would say well that scripture was meant for those people at that time and that's not applicable to us and specifically what bothered me is is the the pre-trib rapture people will look at certain scriptures in the New Testament and say well that's for the end time saints that's not for us and and that's very dangerous to me that's 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 um just like a who who determines which scriptures are for end time saints and which aren't you know and and b how can you make a distinction between end time saints and 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 us, you know, we don't know when, like, it, they're allowing their preconceived um, conception of a pre-trib rapture to dictate how they read the scriptures, and to me that's dangerous. Instead of letting the scriptures dictate how we think about something, they're letting their thoughts dictate how they read the scriptures. It's like backwards thinking to me. And so I started to see that as, as dispensationalism was getting explained, um, I've seen, okay, well, they, 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 they frame things in these different chapters and, and they believe that, um, we currently are in something called the church age and that this is going to, the church age will end with the rapture. And then there's a different age and a different, different people. There's a, there's a different group of God's people. People that get saved after the rapture are distinct from people who get saved 
prior to the rapture, just like people who are saved now are distinct from Old Testament saints. And and so I always saw that. I always thought, man, that's like just dangerous thinking. You know, it's it's I don't like it. It it's it's if I it, the moment I start discrediting certain parts of the scripture and saying, well, that's for somebody else. I feel like I'm in danger. You know, all scripture is God breathed. And yes, there's historical context. There, There's things, you know, when you read it and it's obvious in the context that that was for that, spe- like the command to go into the Canaanite land and to 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 kill all the, the heathens and to take their land or whatever. Um, those commands, his, those are historical accounts so that that was for that time period, you know, and the, and the, again, the context makes that clear. Um, but I believe that any teaching, because God doesn't change, so any any commandment, anything that that is moral and good, is moral and good at all periods of time. God doesn't change, and 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 God's character revealed throughout the, all the scriptures is for all of us. And there, there's no distinction between us getting saved. We're not favored because we somehow were lucky enough to get saved prior to the rapture. So, like, you know, I, the person I had heard talk about that was like, well, saints who get saved after the rapture, they they have to endure to the end. You know, they can be lost. And it's like, well, hold on now. Now you're preaching work salvation. You know, if they have to do certain things to make it, there's no distinct. And why are we favored? Why are we special? You know, you hear them say that that verse they often quote is, uh, we're not appointed to wrath. And I they misapply that. That verse is talking about hell. Yeah, we're not appointed to wrath. None of God's people are. That's not just for us. It's not talking about the tribulation period. And and all so then, you know, if that verse means God's people aren't appointed to wrath, well then why are God's people that are saved after the rapture, why are they appointed to wrath? Why the God's n- doesn't show favoritism. We're not favored over them. Why are we special? Like it's it just poses all sorts of problems and um so that led me to say, okay, I'm I'm not dispensational. But then on the covenant side, I was hearing um, things like uh, there's a lot of Old Testament prophecies that are made about Israel that have not been fulfilled. And so covenant theology says that um, the church, they'll say like, my understanding of it, and I still don't have a full grasp of it, is that God's people are Israel. And so those Old Testament prophecies about like the promised land and 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 the nation of Israel and all that, those are metaphors for some spiritual reality for us, for the church, because we are spiritual Israel. And so they 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 have to um spiritualize a lot of Old Testament prophecies and not take them literal. And I always saw a problem with that as well. Um, because I, I believe that um, the scriptures are to be taken in their contextual, literal form. Um, yes, the, the the Bible does use poetry, but the context clearly identifies it as poetry. And the scriptures use parables, but the the context clearly identifies it as parables. When there when there's not um, a reason, when there's no 
contextual reason to turn it into a parable or to turn it into poetry. It's meant literally. It's meant to be taken literal. And I believe the New Testament talks about um, a distinction between Israel, national Israel, and spiritual Israel. So like I always saw there, there, there is a national Israel and, and there's also a spiritual Israel. And spiritual Israel is just another word for church. The church has always existed. I don't believe in a church age. The church has, if we're using the word church as God's people, the church has always existed. It's just, it previously wasn't open to the Gentiles. It used to be that within the nation of Israel, God had a spiritual Israel, a remnant. And, and the Old Testament often talks about that. You think about that one prophet, I can't remember who, but he thought he was the only one. And he, and he said, you know, am I the only one, Lord? And the Lord said, I've reserved for myself 7,000 that have not bent the knee. You know, there, there were 7,000 reserved spiritual Israelites within the nation of Israel. So, and we see that in New Testament where like there, there's a general calling, the gospel, we call to all to repent and believe. But then there's an effectual calling. There's a there's a real call. Those who 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 hear and repent and believe, those who are chosen by God. And so in the past you had national Israel and and God chose from within national Israel a people, a spiritual Israel, a church. And then the book of Romans talks about how uh, post-crucifixion, that spiritual Israel has been opened up to the Gentile nations, the wild olive branches. And we are being grafted in to the promises of Israel. We're grafted in to the inheritance. We become adopted Jews. We become spiritual Israelites. We become children of Abraham. And, and that's the church. But there's still a national Israel. And, and I believe those Old Testament prophecies are literal, and there are literal prophecies meant for national Israel. There are things that are going to happen. There are things that, that are promised to the nation of Israel, to the national Jews. And Paul talked about how all the Jews will be saved. I believe that, and and I believe that's what the book of Revelation is talking about, is when when the time of the Gentiles has come to an end and, and salvation has gone back to national Israel and all the Jews will eventually be saved. Zechariah 12 talks about that, I believe. And, um, and, and Romans, what is it, 10, 11 um, talks about it as well. So I'm in disagreement with covenantal theology on that point as well. I don't believe we should spiritualize or allegorize or, or turn into metaphors uh, these clearly literal prophecies. You know, all the prophecies about Christ and his first coming were fulfilled literally. So why would we say that all the other prophecies about the second coming are non-literal and and it just doesn't make sense to me. And so I got excited um, when I heard that uh, Pastor John Piper um, believed in something called New Covenant Theology or Progressive Covenant Theology. And because um, I'm, I'm Pastor Piper, I haven't heard him talk a lot about eschatology, but what I have heard him say, I'm in agreement with him. And so that, that always made me excited. And I think like what I've heard about, like, Spurgeon is the same way. I don't think he talked a lot about eschatology, but what I've heard from Spurgeon, I'm in agreement with. And, and those are two of my, my spiritual heroes. So it's always exciting to think, oh, okay, these guys that I respect, um, that I think read the scriptures the same way I do, um, they're seeing the same things that I'm seeing in the scriptures. 
And what I see is that um, there are no distinctions in time. God has always uh, saved by faith um, through grace. It, it, there's it, the law didn't save in the Old Testament. That that's not the way people were saved. People were saved by faith. Um, they just had faith in in revelation that God had given at that time. God has progressively revealed more and more of his plan over time until the crucifixion when Christ was revealed as the Savior. Uh, but um, he gave a promise to Adam and Eve. You know, the heel shall crush the head, uh, that prophecy. They had faith in that. Uh, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain because he did it by faith. And Abraham was saved by faith. Noah built the ark by faith. Um, so they didn't have the whole picture, but what God had revealed to them, they had faith in and they were saved by that. They became Christians, so to speak. They became part of the church. They became spiritual Israel by faith. So God has always saved in that same way. He has always worked in that same way. We've just gotten more and more of the picture as time has gone on. Um, and so I, I, I believe... Um, that that's so that that I think disqualifies me from being dispensational. And so um as I as I study this out, I, I'm I'm leaning more and more towards new covenant theology or progressive covenant theology, um, which I think is taking the correct approach. It's taking the good things from dispensationalism, the idea of of interpreting the scriptures literally. Um, it's taking that and then it's and 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 the distinction between um Israel and and the church and but I would add that I I think um from what I understand dispensationalism doesn't uh, doesn't do a good enough job I think there's actually three categories not two there's not just Israel and the church there's national Israel and spiritual Israel and then if you want to call it the church but I would say spiritual Israel and the church are the same so I I would define it as not Israel and the church I would say national Israel and spiritual Israel um but I see that distinction there which covenantal theology doesn't so I I would take the literalism and the distinction between national Israel and spiritual Israel from dispensationalism uh but then I'm also going to take from covenant theology of of God's progressive work um, through his promises and faith in his promises and combine them into to what I believe is the correct view is, is this new covenant theology um, that that holds to a literal interpretation that I believe there will be a literal fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. I believe that um, when you when you read the New Testament in light of that, you can see that the time of the Gentiles will come to an end that the wild olive branches will stop being grafted in and that the 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 natural branches Israel uh will will once again start being grafted in um and and I believe the book of revelation I see I, it all ties together together because um Jesus when he came started in in the book of Daniel in in chapter 9 Daniel saw it was given a prophecy a vision of a, of a 70 week time period for the Jews, for national Israel. Um, and, and, and that time period, uh, spiritually, 70 weeks, one day equaling a year, is 490 years. And Daniel was told, from the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem until the revealing of the Messiah, 
will be 69 of those weeks, 483 of those years. There, there's the time period for Israel. They've got 490 years, and, and, and 483 of those years are from the commandment to rebuild to the revealing of the Messiah, um, which is one of the most magnificent prophecies ever given, uh, because from the command to be re rebuild Jerusalem until the revelation of Jesus at the baptism when he was baptized by John was exactly 483 years. Luke gives the time, the exact time, he, he records it as 27 AD. So you go from 457 BC when the command to rebuild Jerusalem was given until 27 AD when the anointing of the Messiah happened or the, the baptism of the Messiah, and, and that's 483 years. So that's 69 weeks, which means that Jesus's ministry was the start of the 70th week. And, and in Daniel chapter 9, it said in the midst of that week, he would be cut off, but not for himself. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus was crucified three and a half years in, into the, that's the midst of a seven year period of one week. What's the middle of one, one week? What's the middle of seven? It's three and a half. Jesus' ministry was exactly three and a half years from 27 AD to whatever it was, 30 or 31, I, I don't know the months, but it was a three and a half year period. And then he was cut off. He was crucified. He was killed, but not for himself. He was killed for us. So that ended, that that put a, um, uh, that he, that put a halt or um, a temporary stop to that, to that 70th week. Only three and a half years of that 70th week for, were fulfilled. There's still three and a half years due to national Israel. And the book of Revelation picks that up. That's what that's talking about. The book of Revelation talks about a three and a half year time period or 42 months, which equals three and a half years or 1260 days, which equals three and a half years or time times and half a time, which is three and a half years. The book of Revelation references that time period over and over again. Um, so I believe the book of Revelation is when the ministry returns back to national Israel and, and the Gentile world will go back into darkness, um, will we'll be persecuted. The, 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 the beast system will be uh, persecuting believers, um, the Gentile world, the Gentile believers. So we've got this time period, this time of the Gentiles, where we're being grafted in, but there's coming a time where that's going to end and salvation is going to go back to national Israel and national Israel is going to experience a revival and those natural olive branches are going to be start, starting to be grafted back in. Um, so I'm still studying this out. Like I say, it, it's still just really like... The, the concept of it is still, of covenant theology and, and whatnot is still kind of difficult for me to grasp, but the, the progressive covenant theology or new covenant theology, I think does the right thing. It's taking what's right from dispensationalism and what's right from covenant theology and combining it and creating a correct biblical worldview in, in which, um, Salvation eternally is by faith alone, in Christ alone, and that faith has been progressively expanded so that we understand more of what we have faith in, but it's always been the same. 
And, and there's a clear distinction between national Israel and spiritual Israel. And there are still promises due to national Israel. And the time of the Gentiles will come to an end. And, and all of national Israel will eventually be saved. Um, that's how I read the scriptures. And so I think that puts me into the camp of New Covenant theology. But I'm still going to keep studying it out um, because I, I still don't have a full grasp on it. But... Um, it's been a, a, a an exciting thing to look into. It's been a fun thing to look into. And that video series that I found was really good. Um, I can't remember the name of it. Let me let me see if I can find it real quick here. So I found it on YouTube. I apologize about how my voice recorder cut off there. I didn't realize it would cut off when I pulled up YouTube. But it's um, Living Hope International. Again, that's Living Hope International. There's two teachers, Sean Finnegan and Jerry uh, Weirwile or something like that. Um, but it's it's a 22-part series. Uh, it's really good. If, if this is something you're interested in, interested in I, I would highly recommend that you uh, look it up and, and, and give it a listen. I was listening to a pastor um, this weekend give a sermon, and an interesting concept came up. At first, I was um, leery. I was a little skeptical. I was a little on guard because I didn't really understand where he was going with it. But um, as I listened on, I found myself, I think, in agreement. Um, basically, what he was saying is um, he was talking about forgiveness and that... Initially, what I what I heard him saying was that forgiveness shouldn't always be given immediately. That there's there's a right time and place for forgiveness. And so when I heard that, um, like I say, I was immediately skeptical because I was like, "Well, hold on, we're if we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven." You know, I I don't withhold forgiveness. We're we're supposed to always forgive. I'm not supposed to hold any grudges. I'm not supposed to be bitter. I'm not supposed to, you know, when I when you hold on to bitterness, when you hold on to unforgiveness, it it sours you. It becomes a rottenness in your bones. It's damaging and it's hurtful. And so I was like, well, all right. I I my, I get you know, I appreciate the pastor, so I gave him um, leeway, and I was like, let me let me see where he's going with this. And he explained that. I think what he was trying to say, and, and I, I believe I'm correct here, is that he was saying, yes, we, we are to be people of forgiveness. We in our in our hearts, in our we're supposed to have a spirit of forgiveness. Like you shouldn't hold a grudge. You shouldn't be bitter. If somebody wrongs you, um, in your heart, there there should be an immediate release. You shouldn't hold that against them. Because, like, I think of, like, the scripture where, where Jesus gave that parable about the, the king who forgave. And then the servant went out and refused to forgive his fellow servant. And the king was um, furious at him, saying, you know, I forgave you so much. How could you not go and forgive your fellow servant this little tiny thing? And um, the idea there is, you know, we sin continually against God. Where our hearts are full of rebellion, our thoughts, our our minds, our actions, our words, we're in we're in constant sin against God, and yet if we're in Christ, 
he has forgiven us all those sins. He has forgiven us this massive, massive debt that that is incalculable. It's it's it, it's um beyond words how big this thing is. And and if he forgives us that, how could I ever go and hold anything against anybody? You know, no matter what they do to me, it's a minuscule thing. Um, even if they completely destroy my life compared to what I've done, it's a tiny little sliver of a thing, you know? So of course I have to be forgiving. And so if somebody wrongs me, I have to have that in my heart. I have to immediately let it slide. I have to remember, you know, they're just a sinful person like I am. You know, they, they've done nothing that I haven't done in my heart a thousand times worse. And so there's immediate forgiveness. But the point he was making is that to, to then offer that forgiveness has to be done in the right time. And it, it, it should come after there's a um, sign of contrition from the person that did the offending. There has to be uh, repentance. There has to be a brokenness on their part. Because if somebody wrongs us, and we don't get the repentance and we don't get the, you know, they don't offer any sort of remorse and we just immediately forgive them. What we're doing is enabling them. We're, we're, we're not allowing um, the conviction of the spirit to work on them. And while he was saying what he was saying, I was thinking of that verse that talks about um, a man who doesn't eat, or I'm sorry, a man who doesn't work shouldn't eat. And it also talks about how, we as believers, if if we have a, a fellow brother um, who doesn't work, who refuses to work, we should cut fellowship with them. And, and then there's a reason given. The reason is so that they will be shamed, so that they'll be humbled, so that they'll come to their senses, that they'll repent. And, and so I was thinking of that, and I was like, man, that makes sense. You know, because if a person does something evil to you, they, they commit some sort of sin against you, um the 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 spirit in their heart ought to be bringing conviction ought to be bringing um some semblance of remorse and sorrow so that they realize what they've done is wrong and that then they come to you seeking reconciliation and then of course you give it Jesus said you know if your brother sins against you uh 40 what was it 490 times in a day you know and comes to you in repentance you forgive him and so that was the verse he pointed out it said because that verse specifically says when he repents you know then forgive and so the idea there is like um he gave a really good analogy too but um of like a a, um a battery powered um flashlight and like when you disconnect the battery, that battery is fully charged. It is full of forgiveness, um, but it has no effect on the flashlight until it's connected. And he was given an analogy of, of Christ and us, um, but to I'm doing a really bad job of explaining this analogy, but the idea is that we as people, as believers, are to be full of forgiveness we are to be full, you know, there's no room in a believer's life for grudges or for vengeance or for bitterness or for unforgiveness. We can't hold that in us. 
So if somebody wrongs us, we are full of forgiveness. It's we, We've already forgiven in our hearts. We're already not holding the grudge. But we're not going to connect that forgiveness to the flashlight, so to speak. We're not going to connect that to them until the, the Lord has brought them to the position where it ought to be applied. The, until the Lord has brought conviction to them where they've shown remorse and sorrow and, and repentance. And, and then, of course, it's an immediate forgiveness. You know, it's, it's immediately offered. Um, so as a person, as like if, if you wrong me, you do something wrong, uh, you sin against me, I'm not going to hold that in my heart. I'm, I, I'm not going to hold on to that bitterness. I'm not going to hold on to that, uh, that grudge, that, that, that unforgiveness. It, that's not going to be a part of me. That's not who we are. In our hearts, there's peace, there's there's love, there's forgiveness. Um, but you delay offering that forgiveness. You you don't just go and immediately say it's all right. I forgive you, because then there's no there's no work on their heart. Then there's no work of repentance. There's no work of sorrow. There's no work of contrition on their part. So my like I have that in my heart. There is no bitterness. But I wait for you to come and 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 make a gesture of, of sorrow, a gesture of wanting reconciliation, and then it's connected. Then it like I've already prepared; it's already there. I already have it. You just have to come tap into it, and and to tap into it is is it, it comes through your repentance, through your your contrition. Not not that I need you to humble yourself before me or anything like that. Uh, because that that would be evil as well. But it's it's saying I don't want to pat you on the back and comfort you without you realizing that you've sinned. So if that I don't know if I'm making any sense out of this, but um, so it was just a, it was interesting. It was um, like I say at first I was listening to the sermon with skepticism. I was going, well, hold on now. What do you mean? I'm not supposed to immediately forgive. You know, uh, I'm, I am supposed to be a forgiving person. I am supposed to not hold any sort of bitterness or grudge. And, and he was in, and his point was like, yes, that is who we are, but we, we can't comfort a person in their sin. We, we can't, um, bypass the work of the spirit. Our job is to do uh, offer the forgiveness in the proper timing to to wait for that um brokenness to wait for that contrition and and then the work is is pure then then both sides are benefiting then then the person who has wronged you um has been taught by the spirit the lesson they need to learn as well and so i thought that was really just a really good idea um, something I hadn't thought of before, but I, I certainly appreciated it. Um, by the end of the sermon, I, I, I was, um, enlightened and, and refreshed and re rejoice. I was rejoicing to, to have this new thought, this new concept. It was, it was just a really good idea. It's, it's, about when to offer forgiveness. We're always to be forgiven, always full of of forgiveness and and um reconciliation. 
but there's a time for it to be offered. And just a, a good good thought. All right, so that's what I got for you guys this week. Um, as always, I truly appreciate you listening. I love you, and Lord willing, we'll talk to you next time.